You're listening to the Left Coast Pirates. This is Lavelle Sanders, one of the most underrated players in scene hall history. Had a great time with, on the podcast. Make sure you check these guys out. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? Doing well as always, Tommy. Bright and sunny here in San Diego. How about you? Michael, it's summertime and the living's easy, man. Just spent the day at the beach, and now I get to talk about all things Seton Hall today with you, man. I'm very excited. Well, we really haven't had a chance to talk about Miles Powell coming back to Seton Hall. We've had a bunch of guests on and a lot of fun interviews, but we really haven't had a chance to dive into Seton Hall basketball talk since we kind of finished up with J.P. Pelsman. And with Miles being back, all those preseason expectations have skyrocketed. We thought that the preseason rankings were too high to start off with. Oh, we had no idea. So I think it's getting a little ridiculous. I mean, you want to start with the team first? Or you want to start with some of these like preseason player polls? Let's start with the preseason player polls because they're kind of interesting, to be honest with you. All right. So, so the preseason player polls, I don't feel are that far out of bounds. I mean, because obviously Miles Powell is going to get the recognition that he deserves. I think when all said and done, he's probably going to end up on a preseason all-American list. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I think the way this season is going to play out and the way Miles is progressing in his game, I think he's a lock for at least an honorable mention. My concern is this, though. Sometimes when these guys end up on the preseason list, it puts an immense amount of pressure on them. And the guys that are on the preseason list never mirror the guys that end up making the cut. I mean, at this point, Miles, to make honorable mention, I think would be falling short of what his potential could be. So do you see that causing the kind of pressure that maybe he does, tries to do too much in his game to live up to that hype? No, I. you know what? Last season would have been the same kind of idea, minus the national exposure that we're getting now. Miles was basically the only sure thing coming back from last year. I mean, we were hoping Sandra was going to make a, a leap. We were hoping Kayla was going to make the leap. But it was going to be the Miles Powell show. Beyond that, who knew what was going to come up? And he seems to have that personality that likes to take it on. He, he, you know, he, I know this kind of turns you off, Mike, in some ways. I like that he's braggadocious. I like that he's in your face. I think he feeds off this more than anything else. Okay. But there's a difference between being the man on Seton Hall's team last year that's picked to finish eighth in the Big East to now being on a national recognition level. He was getting that recognition towards the end of the season, but not to start the year. I mean, right now in Andy Katz's top 25 players, he's got Miles Powell number three nationally. That's that's crazy. 
I'm, I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it, but you're, you can't make the same parallel from last year's expectations of his leadership to what you're expecting from the perceived third best player in the entire country. No. You know, I may eat crow, but I think he's going to feed off this. I just think that's his personality. I mean, people were saying, people in the know were saying that Miles was the best player on Seton Hall. This is the third year going. In his sophomore year, he's he's still not starting, and people are still saying that's the best player in that team. People in the know. I think he's going to feed off this and continue. I get it. I get it. It's just now going to be under the microscope. And what's interesting is some of the other names that are on this list happen to be guys that end up falling on our schedule, which it, it makes it a lot, a lot of fun to kind of analyze and say, "Woo, we got some pretty good matchups. So just to kind of call out a few, the number one player on Katz's list is Cassius Winston out of Michigan State, and his teammate number 20 is Xavier Tillman. So that makes for a pretty intense matchup to start the season early on. You got Marcus Howard ranked number two. You're going to get two matchups against Marquette. And you got Anthony Cowan Jr. ranked nine and Jalen Smith, 19. Maryland also coming to the Rock later this year. So it's going to be front and center from a national perspective. It's not going to be in our little northeast corner, the biggies bubble that we live in. This is going to be front and center on a national stage. And it's going to be fun. Name the last time we had these kind of expectations and these kind of opposing teams coming in. It's just going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited. My only other concern is that, you know, what happened to Miles in the offseason, and I'm not saying it's going to be a negative, but he definitely went through the NBA draft camps, and he absolutely should have. He earned the right to do so, and it'd be kind of silly of him not to. You, you got to see where your stock is at when you're that talented. But the feedback that he got at those NBA draft camps is that he needs to improve his ability to facilitate in order to play on the next level. Does that help or hinder his role with the current team? I think it helps. I, I think he was a great facilitator last year. He seemed to pile up a good number of assists, especially coming from a guy who's shot that much. And, you know, I think it'll help him start focusing in. He was still a guy that had a lot of silly turnovers and things of that nature. If he's tightened up his game, I think he's right there. Damn it, you're actually going to make me agree with you. I like, I love going toe-to-toe. <laughs> but I agree. I, I absolutely agree. I, he's going to think pass first when he faces that double team. He might not put it all on his shoulders. And I think you're gonna, he's going to start to build some of the confidence from the guys that you know have another year under their belt around him in that supporting cast. So I I, I agree with you. And, and you gotta like it. You know he's a returning senior. He's got a lot of Big East wars underneath his belt. He knows what the NCAA tournament is like, even though we haven't had that much success with him here. And not and it's not being on his shoulders that we haven't had that success. But you know one win in his tenure in the NCAA's. That's that's not a lot of success there, but nothing he's going to see this coming season is going to surprise him or rattle him, I think. All right. So so while I agree that the Miles Powell rankings are, are more in line with what his ceiling is or what he's capable of doing, let's transition over to and, and stick with Andy Katz here. Let's stick with some of the national rankings from a team perspective. Now, I know there are multiple pundits out there that kind of have their preseason or way too early preseason rankings. And Seton Hall kind of falls all over the map, somewhere between, you know, 7 up to 15. I'm going to stick with Andy Katz because that's what we use for the Powell uh, analysis. Katz has Seton Hall as high as 7th, and that is the highest ranking that I've seen out there. Once again, 
some of the competition we're facing, Michigan State won, Maryland five, potential matchups in the Bahamas of UNC and Gonzaga at 10 and 12 respectively, and a loaded Big East bouncing back at Nova 14, Xavier 15, Georgetown 19, Marquette 24, and Providence 30. It's a loaded schedule, loaded, which we already knew was going to be the case. But this is a team that has consistently not been able to maintain its foothold in the top 25. Does this type of a ranking put too much pressure on the overall team to live up to that expectation? Well, there's always pressure and coming in at seven. Yeah, that might be a little bit ridiculous. I mean, we were even saying that the 12 might have been too high. Um, I don't know how teams go up and down that much, especially during uh, a situation where you're just getting grad transfers or, or transfers in general from other schools coming in. The one thing I do like, a majority of the starters are going to be upperclassmen. Again, these guys have been through this. They have seen this. They have gone to war. And I think that experience is going to help them. Sandro's a junior. Kale's a junior. Powell's a senior. Q's a senior. I mean, this is going to help them handle those pressures. I don't disagree. I, I think the scheduling that Willard has put together is challenging. It's the right type of schedule that this program wants to kind of elevate its game to. I, I don't question any of that aspect of what, what we're talking about, but let's kind of bring it back to what the topic is at hand. The topic is at hand, is the ranking system going to kind of create this undue stress? So here's kind of my takeaway. Early in the season, if you lose a game or two, and it's very easy to lose a game or two when you're facing the likes of Michigan State, Maryland, North Carolina, Oregon, at Rutgers. We got some tough games. Did you just they, say at Rutgers is a tough game, Michael? I, you, you know it's their Super Bowl. It's they, they find a way to elevate their game for that one game of the year, and then they go back to being who they are. I don't but, even know you anymore. But, but look, we're, we're getting sideways here. The point is, if they lose one or two of those games, doesn't matter who they lose to, the way these kind of polls work early in the season is there's so much volatility. You jump up and down that list like there's no tomorrow. If they go from a preseason, let's say it's like 10, and all of a sudden they drop out in week three and they're no longer in the top 25 because they lost two tough matchups, you know, what's the media going to be like? What's going to be the attitude of the fan base? You know, what are the expectations going to be now? And does that cause more pressure on the team? That's my concern. Well, now that's the coaching job. We had Jerry Walker on earlier this summer, and when that St. Anthony's team came in, ranked number one in the nation, he came in with a paper and he said, you see this? I'm going to go to the bathroom and wipe my butt with it because this doesn't mean anything. And this is going to be the chance for Willard to take a hold of this team. You come in and say, we're ranked number seven and we haven't done a darn thing for it. It's time to now prove we're supposed to be there. And losses are going to happen, especially in the out-of-conference, especially with how loaded it's going to be. Now it's on Willard to manage this. Don't let them get too down. Don't let them get too high. Make sure they have the eye on the prize and keep working for it. Well, let me ask you this then. I, I, I read this all the time. This team, this program is better when they're the hunter not the hunted, you know? So it, it, it's better if we're not the top 25 to start the year and, and let us kind of work our way up and sneak up on people. Well, I think that's uh, that's the signs of an immature team. You know, so younger teams have an easier time of doing that. You know, we, we're not one of the blue bloods. We're not going to get that number one recruiting class every year where we can have a young team and still be successful. 
you know, our teams need to be more senior and junior laden teams. As I don't know if I can get, do this. I, I don't, I don't know if I can do this podcast. I don't know if I can do this podcast anymore. I am agreeing with you across the board. I, I just, I'm like, wow, here Tom's talking, and all I'm doing is I'm agreeing. Is this, is this gonna work this year? I, I don't know. I don't know. We gotta, uh, we gotta talk about something we don't, th- don't agree with. But it's a bunch of BS. It really is. Give me the exposure. I want to be in the blue blood conversation. Villanova wasn't there, you know, this entire time. They worked their way there. You got to earn it. But get me in that conversation. Put me in front of the recruits as a perennial top 25 team. I don't want to keep on sneaking into the tournament as a as a 10 seed or an 8-9 game. I want to be fighting for that Big East championship over and over again. And that is being in the top 25. That is being the hunted. Stop worrying about the bullseye being on your back and go out and just kick some, you know what? So this is where Kevin Willer is going to earn that extension he got. Can he focus his team on that prize? Keep the eye on the prize. Make sure they know that every game they go in there is another example of them showing that they can play. Don't lose those games that you're not supposed to lose. We've lost a bunch of those games this past few seasons that we were not supposed to lose. We were not supposed to lose Rhode Island. We were not supposed to lose against St. Louis. A couple years ago in Desi and Angel's senior year, they were not supposed to go to Rutgers and lose. I get it. I get it. I'm more concerned about where the predictions are going to line up for the Big East season in general. Eh, predictions, predictions are predictions, uh, man. All right, so, so it's, it's, the, all right, it's the same theory of it's Willard's job to kind of keep the eye on the prize, avoid the January swoon. I, I'm more talking about from the excitement of a fan base. So you should be excited because we're hyped up for the first time at that level in a long time. But I'll ask you this question. If they go on to win the Big East regular season, and they were predicted to win the Big East regular season, does it diminish the accomplishment? No, you still did it. You did it. You were supposed to do it. That's fine, but you did it. And we all know how brutal the Big East East schedule can be. But is it different because we haven't won it in like 30 years and we're comparing ourselves? Let's say we were Villanova. You know, Villanova wins it all the time. They're, They're expected to win it. Then they win it, and their fan base is like, ah, eh, we, won't, we won the Big East regular season title again. I, I'd love to get to that position, but there is no way our fan base should feel like that. We haven't won it in forever. The best we've done in this great run of four straight NCAA tournaments is coming in third. And, and they have not been a dominant third. I mean, I know it was 12-6 and six the year with Whitehead. But typically it's a 10 and 8, a 9 and 9. I, I get it. They could have easily lost one or two more games and been in seventh or eighth just like that. Here we go again. I agree. But <laughs> well, well guys, you know, Mike, let, let's move on a little bit because a lot of the pirates have been in action this past summer. And it's kind of exciting, man. You know, we're getting a name brand out there and people are starting to see things. That's pretty cool. You got Miles Powell and Miles Kale playing for Team USA in the Pan Am games. It's exclusively like a special Big East roster of predominantly former play, our current players, and a couple of former players sprinkled in. I, I don't think they had the uh, the big men size that they needed, so they went out and got some uh, some guys off the scrap heap per se. But you got Ed Cooley and Kevin Willard as the assistant coach. 
And throughout the month of August, they're going to be playing, I, I think it's what, like FIBA down in like, where, where is it? Uh, it Peru, down south somewhere? Peru? Peru? Right? Lima, Peru? Down south, but, Peru. <laughs> down, what is it? South on the globe? Let's not get into geography here, please. Oh, Michael, you should have taken a, four, a few more classes back at the hall. Uh, I, I'm a business major. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a liberal arts guy. It's okay. All right. But, but, but you know what? The, what happens? The thing we fear most about, first game out, Miles gets an ankle stepped on or twists his ankle and he, he walks off. Off and he was fine afterwards, but man, did that give me a little agita. Right, right. So you want these guys to play ball over the summertime, but to what extent? I mean, we, we saw a guy like Paul George trying out for the, the men's Olympic team, and he basically blew out his his foot with a gruesome injury where he lost an entire season. Is it worth that type of competition where the risk for injury might go up? Or could a guy get hurt just playing pickup basketball? For I'd rather have him play in this kind of event than have him playing pickup at the rack that we had some video on earlier this this summer. You know, I, I'd rather have him play in a setting with real coaches, real facilities, than have him just play ball against whoever's in the gym that might be looking to make a name for themselves. Uh, and that's where I was going to go. Like some of these guys are trying to play hero ball in these pickup games, or you know what? They're playing this first ex exhibition game against other collegiate athletes, if I'm not mistaken, like another collegiate all-star team. But these guys are not playing for Team USA where our guys are. And it's like, hey, the, the great Miles Powell's across the way from me. I, I got to do something here. Or, you know, do they foul harder because, you know, that they were, they're trying to make a statement. I, I don't know. You know, the guys are going to play regardless. You know, they're playing pickup. They're playing at the wreck. They're playing wherever. This is almost like advertising for the program. We got Miles and Miles on the Team USA. It's a great honor for them. You know, you've been chosen. Play it. They, you know, they're going to play anyway. You don't get sealed up in some bubble wrap and get put away for the season and wait for the next Midnight Madness to start. All right, so let, let's talk about actual, you know, international competition. So Tyree Samuel plays for the under-19 Worlds for Team Canada, and this is how, this is, I don't know if I'm ha proud about this, but I'm sitting here watching streaming video on my phone of Team Canada play like Latvia, just so I can get a look at Tyree Samuel and kind of get an opinion to see kind of, you know, what his skill set is. You know, should we get excited about this guy? And I, I got kind of a mixed bag. I know you got a chance to watch some of the games too. G give me your take. These guys are getting thrown together. They're playing very simple offensive sets. Uh, I, I mean, most of the time I was watching Tyrese was set in the high pick and then rolling. I mean, it was, it, there's not a whole lot going on in these games, some fast breaks and moving on. You know, he seemed to have played decently. You know, there was a lot of criticism on Twitter that he needs to play harder on defense. And they, you know what? Wait till he gets in front of Kevin Willard. His motor will start. But, but you're playing against a bunch of 6'3 to 6'5 Latvia ball players, and he's 6'9, and he's not really rebounding out of his space. I mean, he put up like 17 boards that game, and I'm sitting there going, he could have easily had like 25. It, it, there was just something in kind of watching his mannerisms that I was just like, I want to see a little more energy gets back to that, you know, high motor kind of criticism. I'm not saying it's founded. It was, it was just a handful of tournament games, but, but there was enough of a sample there to kind of, you know, take some analysis of his overall play. Question is, is he going to play more of a four or more of a three for us? I think he wants to play more of a three, sees himself that way at the next level per se. I'm not saying he's going to the NBA, but 
this kid has talked in some of his interviews to say, I would love to play at the NBA level. You got to be able to shoot the three as a 6'9 wing to play at the next level. He shot four of 17 from three during this tournament. And this is at a closer distance than he would be shooting at the collegiate level or the NBA level. Is that a concern? He's young. Let him develop. I'm not sure it's a concern at this point. I don't know. I I wasn't watching it that closely where I was seeing how his threes were coming up. For me, oh, it's yeah, not I, a concern. I'll throw you, I'll throw you another shot. This is like t- showing me an and one tape, Mike. And telling me to be impressed because Sandro starts off with some free throws. There it is. Kept it in his back pocket. Couldn't hold on to it long enough. I need to see it in game time when he's with the team. I'm just trying to give the opposite side of the perspective here. I I could be completely off base. I'm excited about the kid's potential. He also shot two of nine from the free throw line for the tournament. But if you want a positive spin, there were moments, and this will go back to like Sandro's uh, high school highlight tape, where he was able to grab a rebound and go coast to coast, putting the ball on the floor for a six, nine guy. I was really impressed by that. I liked his ability to kind of grab the ball, you know, at that, the high post and put a couple dribbles down and get to the basket. So, I mean, once again, it's, it's, it's five games in an international tournament for under 19 year old, uh, year old ball players. You're right. So what level are they being coached? What kind of, you know, schematics, defensively and offensively are they being held accountable to probably very limited but there was a mixed bag so what it, what it told me was the kids got uber athletic ability it just might take some time for it to develop on a consistent basis and i hope the fan base is patient in his development he probably wants to play right away i think with the way this roster is constituted he might get 10 minutes a night and if he doesn't play at a high level of defense he might get lesser minutes in the big east willard's been known to do that in the past i just see him projecting to be more of a sophomore and beyond type player like we've seen recently from a from a sandro all right let's talk about some of our other guys that are already on the roster that we are expecting bigger things from and see how they're doing this summer as well got a chance to not really watch but kind of read about how nelson and sandro are kind of doing over on the the, the Dykeman circuit. I mean, both look jacked in their photos. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much stock they're supposed to take into that, but their body type absolutely went from like a, you know, the wiry type player to this. I, I don't know. I think Sandro can hold his own. And I mean, Nelson just looks like a different guy. A lot of tweets came out about Nelson, about how he was running the game. We had that one video of, of Sandro throwing one down, which looked good. He looked real good. But Nelson was getting a lot of props from a lot of different places. So, and you know what? It's a summer tournament. I don't know how much stock. Historically, the Dykeman Basketball Tournament is one of the premier summer streetball tournaments in New York City. Being New Jersey guys, we have a lot of respect for that whole New York City streetball scene. So, I'm looking forward to seeing how that translates. It's good to see it. I'm glad they didn't get hurt. And let's move on. But that's what I like, though. I like to hear about this gritty New York tough point guard mentality because that's what I want to see from Nelson. He he showed us all the skill set last year, but you wanted to see a different level of toughness, whether that be on defense, which Willard maybe kind of held him back for his minutes because of that. Or I just wanted him to see or to see him be very aggressive and attack the rim. There were times where we were like, wow, he, he blew by his guy off the dribble but just couldn't finish with that kind of consistency. He's got the potential to be a very special point guard. I know that we're going to kind of debate as the year goes along as to how many minutes he should get versus Q. 
But to be playing in that type of environment, that, that's a little encouraging. All right. Jersey Shore Basketball League, better known as the JSBL. We've got a Jared Roden sighting, and we also have consistent minutes out of fan favorite Shavar Reynolds. Roden showed up for a cameo appearance and put in 51 points one night, and Shavar has been kind of at the top of the uh, the leaderboard in points per game, averaging almost 30 per. You want to take away anything from the Jersey Shore Basketball League? Not really. Uh, I don't think the level of competition there is all that great. I mean, I, I've been trying to look at the other players that have played there, and all I get is a bunch of mammoth guys that are in it, which makes sense because they're right there. Um, you know, Shavar put up some big numbers. I think he had a 50-plus game as well. A lot of it early on in the in the, in that league was him going to the hole because his two-point percentage was just outrageous to start off with. But his three-point shooting lacked. I mean, it was under 30% up until the last couple games. He must have tore it up in the last couple games because uh, if the numbers, if the stat numbers are right, on the webpage, he ended up at about 38% shooting from three, which means those last two games, he must have just lit up the sky. But we saw some video from this, you know, some highlight clips. No one's playing D. No, uh, no, no one's even pretending they, to play D. They they have not played D for the last two decades. I used to go to these games back in the day. I'm from the Shore Conference area in Marlboro, and we used to drive down to Belmar to watch these games at St. Rose High School. I know they've kind of moved the venue around, but it doesn't matter when or where they play these games. They have never played defense in the JSBL. The games are like 150 to 135. I mean, when they get to the playoffs portion of their summer league, yeah, the games get a little tighter and, and they take it a little more seriously, but guys are coming and going. Sometimes the rosters only have like five or six guys suited up for a given night. Uh, defense is not a premium in the Jersey Shore Basketball League. I'll just leave it at that. Then the one one bad thing that came out of it is there were rumors that Roden was in a walking boot after the fact. So you got to hope that that's not a serious injury. It was just precautionary and that he'll be ready for practices when they start up. See, those are the types of leagues that scare me more than anything else about a guy playing and getting hurt because you just said it. It's a lot of guys at a lower D1. I, I remember there were a bunch of high school kids that would play in the JSBL, and then you have former players that come come back. It's it's a mishmash of talent. It, they're like locally sponsored teams. There's, there's no organization. That's where I would be afraid, you know, with a guy like Roden getting hurt because of the, the unabandoned, reckless play that you might get from some of the, these other guys just trying to kind of make a highlight reel for night that that concerns me but hopefully he's okay well mike you know who also had a really good summer oh tommy go ahead who had a good summer east had a good summer michael and do you know why why? why did the big east have a good summer tommy well to start off with i believe we had three coaches that turned down big time positions in places kevin willard said no to virginia tech ed cooley was brought into Michigan to interview, and he decided to stay home. And there was noise about Jay Wright going to UCLA, and he said, no, you know what? I'm staying in Philadelphia. And and, and the Biggies got another coach to come, right? We got, we got another big-time coach to join the ranks because... UConn is back in the Big East as of not this coming season, but the following season, and we've got that team that we could absolutely balls out hate so you love you love this move then you you really like UConn coming back to the Big East absolutely love it Michael this brings back the championships back to the Big East UConn is still a big name 
And most importantly, as a fan, it brings back the hate. All right, so well, let's do this from a pros and cons analysis perspective. Let, let, I'm with you here. Let's stay on the pros. I think there's a lot that UConn brings to the Big East plate, and, and I think it only makes it better for Seton Hall in the long run because that's that's all the fan base really cares about. I don't care if this is good for UConn. I care about if it's, is it good for Seton Hall in the big picture. So we want TV exposure. What saved the Big East when we broke away from the old Big East and became like the Catholic Seven, and then we brought in Butler, Creighton, and Xavier to form the new Big East, we needed that TV contract from Fox. And we got lucky that Fox Sports 1 was kind of spinning it off their own network at that time, and they needed the ability to fill airtime with programming. We want to make sure that that contract is robust. It provides the the dollars and cents that is needed to kind of facilitate these programs bringing in UConn brings in eyeballs to the television Fox Sports wanted UConn we gave them UConn I felt that was dictated more by them but if that means that when the negotiation for the next contract comes up the entire Big East is going to get a more lucrative deal that's a pro no matter how egotistical or holier than thou that UConn fan base is, it is a robust fan base. They travel well. You will, if you think Nova's crowd travels to the Madison Square Garden for the Big East tournament, well, wait till people see UConn travel. Well, how many times were we at Continental back in the day, and it felt like when UConn came to town that we were playing a road game, or maybe worst case scenario, 50-50 split. You know, people talk about Nova invading, you know, our home arena. UConn would, would just crush the attendance numbers with their fan base. They they send like busloads of like charter trips coming down to our, right. our arena. Not only your local arenas, but obviously the Big East tournament. And I think Madison Square Garden wanted UConn from that perspective. Yes, the Big East has been selling out. Yes, the Big East tournament has been putting up bigger numbers compared to other tournaments across the country. But UConn only solidifies that once again. And whether we like it or not, no matter how far back you want to go, they still have a national championship pedigree. When you talk about the Big East on a national level, no one's talking about the Seton Hall banners that were hung back in the 1960s and the NIT days. They're talking about Georgetown. They're talking about St. John's. They're talking about Nova's recent success. And they're obviously talking about what Calhoun did when they when they put banners up during his time at UConn. That counts. You can sit there and say that they're far removed from that, but that still counts. Well, there are some cons about UConn coming into the into the Big East as well. We we have to look at both sides of the coin. This is not Calhoun's UConn anymore. Everyone's excited about the potential for Danny Hurley going in there. And God, does is this going to hurt a Seton Hall guy going into UConn and rebuilding that team? But it, it's not the Jim Calhoun UConn. Are we trying to say that Hurley doesn't deserve the respect for what he's accomplished so far in his career just because he hasn't lived up to the the expectations of a Calhoun yet? That's not fair. No, I mean, it, it's not that. It's that Calhoun, it it wasn't rebuild. It was reload. Every year, he seemed to have, you know, two, three top recruits just coming in. It was a factory over there. So, so this let's, is going to so take So let's talk building. about recruiting now. It's, let's talk so, about recruiting. Can you recruit a local kid in the Northeast to come to UConn when you're going to be playing your away games in Tulane. No. Right, but 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 now they're going to be recruiting in our backyard. They're going to be able to sit there and say, hey, you come to UConn and you're going to play locally against Teton Hall, St. John's, Villanova, Providence, Georgetown. I mean, that, that makes a difference because, you know, what the heck is up in stores, Connecticut? If you have a basketball factory, rich tradition, and mom and dad can still come watch you play in the tri-state area at some of these other venues, that's a selling point. Man, I've driven through stores, man. That There's nothing. It might as well be Nebraska, nothing. man. There is nothing there, no. 
<laughs> All right, continuing on. It's not a private school. It has public funding, which in Connecticut's case may not be such a positive for them either because that Connecticut state budget's been a mess and it's been a mess for years. Yeah, but it breaks away from the continuity of what the, the current schools are structured as. They're all private institutions. You know, we're sm they're smaller universities. I know some may be bigger than others, but when you start adding in state budgets, and that larger fan base, you end up kind of leaning towards larger resource availability. So when the team is actually really good and the state gets behind their program, more money is going to get funneled in. That could create a competitive imbalance from some people's perspective. Let's talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room. An 8,000-pound gorilla, to be honest. I mean, would it's, they just gonna, bolt, it's an atrocity. Would they bolt for another conference because of football? Oh, we're going to have the football conversation. I, 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 let me let me have at this football conversation. I mean, are, are they even relevant in football? Are, are they going to have a team in the future? I'm not I mean, sure why they even have a team right now. I, I mean, you, you were telling me the other day, you were doing some research on it, and they haven't even played in a respectable bowl game other than the, the one time they snuck into the Fiesta Bowl when the, the Big East was depleted. There was an opportunity during all the conference realignment, I, I can't even keep track, it was like five years ago now, where everyone was pillaging and plundering all these conferences to say, I want to structure my, my conference to be the best of the best, whether it be TV marketing, whether it be... 12 teams to play a conference championship game whatever it was teams were relocating to parts of the country that made no sense for the conference alignment and who got left out in the cold UConn right so I mean th doesn't that kind of paint the picture of people are not attracted to your football program what what has changed in the last five years now they start going what two and two and ten and now all of a sudden that's going to make you want to join the big 12 let, let, let me put them down in the worst way possible regarding college football this isn't even Rutgers moving to the big wow. 10 wow the big 10 wanted a foothold in that northeast market not realizing that nobody in the northeast gave a poop about Rutgers football i would have made the argument that they already had that tv viewing audience with penn state but obviously there was more research done that says they were not capturing a large majority of what they wanted. Notre, and Dame, is, Notre Dame is more popular in this Northeast. Yeah, than I Rutgers know that. Is. I don't have to tell me that. But so somebody did the research and said acquiring Maryland and Rutgers brought in that that, that TV attention. So, we're so reeling it back in. We're, reeling we're it back talking, in. We are not talking about college football here. The, the concept is UConn, to that extent, doesn't even have that kind of cachet for what they can bring to another conference. 28 and 69 since 2012. So, you know so my whole thing is this. No, pack it no, up. I, I, Pack I up the football think... team, let it go away. It's a burden on the state budget. Well, here's the thing. So the, the question was, is it a is it a con because they could take their football program, go someplace else for realignment, and all of a sudden leave the Big East high and dry? And I think we've essentially debunked that theory that, uh-uh, it's probably not going to happen. And the reality that they just announced that they're going to go independent football me, leads me to believe that they're leaning probably more down the line to do like a a subdivision FBS kind of classification more than staying in, in division one at that point. The most important team in that school right now is the women's basketball team. Ouch. Forget, Again, ouch. Forget football. Football's out. The men's basketball team still stands on the same type of footing with the women's team. I know the women's team wins national championships. Oh, it brings positive. Do not tell me that the women's team from a, a level of interest is at a higher level than the men's team. That, that can't be true. I just know Gino didn't have any problem recruiting. <laughs>
I, I, I'm done with this topic. I, I, I am moving on. My, 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 bigger, my bigger issue is we talk about one of the cons being that UConn is going to now be in our hotbed of recruiting. And is that going to hurt Seton Hall? Because now we have to go up against more competition for the local talent. Seton Hall has made some inroads so far this year with what they've been able to accomplish with their recruiting. And I'm excited to have Tyler Calvaruso come back on and kind of share his insight for what we've actually been doing in the summertime relative to the recruiting piece. So for those who aren't in the know, Tyler is the sports editor at the Setonian. He's also a senior staff member and college football recruiting insider for at Eagles Insider and at 24-7 Sports. He's also a staff writer at the Jets Wire. He is absolutely on the pulse of recruiting and he knows what's going on and knows who these guys are. This is a returning guest and he's a friend of the podcast. Welcome back to Left Coast Pirates Live. Tyler Calvaruzzo. Tyler, how are you today? I'm good, guys. Tyler, we, I want to dive right into why we got you back on is to talk recruiting. You seem to be all over Twitter right now, kind of breaking news and kind of being in tune with what's going on with Seton Hall and, and the, the, the current recruits we got to just join and what might be coming down the pipe as we move forward. But I want to kind of rewind a little bit uh, back into the summer and start with the first player that we brought on board, because I think that kind of started some of the dominoes to fall into place. And that starts with Takal Molson a sit one play two transfer at a Canisius because I think the decision Seton Hall made to bring him on as I said kind of started to line up the other pieces as to the decisions we made for the rest of the roster tell us a little bit about Molson and kind of how you thought the transition to the next couple of recruits lined up yeah I definitely agree with the sentiment that Molson was kind of the first domino of the summer I think Seton Hall brought him in with an eye on replacing Quentin McKnight at season's end but I'm thinking in terms of Molson's game, he has a great mid-range game. He's a great distributor. He sees the court well. I've seen a couple of his highlight tapes, actually, if you notice. He has this spin move, mid-range jump shot. It's kind of like Isaiah Whitehead kind of reminded me about. But the only thing he really needs to improve upon, probably his perimeter shooting. He's not the best three-point shooter in the world, but seeing all is no stranger to bringing in guards who are struggle from behind the three-point line. Kevin Willard will get that coached up, as he always does, I'm sure. And overall, I'm a big fan of the Takal Molson get. He's an all-conference player at Canisius. You know, he has the experience. Um, overall, I love what he brings to the table. When you compare him to Quincy McKnight and his all-MAC performance kind of lines up with the all-MAC, or excuse me, all-NEC performance that we got out of Quincy McKnight, you know, all-rookie, and then all of a sudden he's, a, you know, a top performer in the league making all-conference. So, I mean, I think fans should sit there and not question this kind of a move because we have a little bit, bit of a pedigree in what we were able to accomplish with McKnight and therefore trusting the staff to, you know, to evaluate talent from the transfer pool at a low mid-major. I know there was a lot of fans that were like, why are we going after a low mid-major player again here in Molson like we did with McKnight? Yeah, I think Willard kind of established a blueprint with that by bringing with Mike McKnight. He followed the same exact plan for going after Molson, bringing in a guard who succeeded at a mid-major program and wrapped up, racked up the accolades. Now he's going to come to the Big East, he's going to face tougher competition. He's going to spend the year off getting acclimated to playing with the team, getting in the weight room, working on his game. So Willard definitely knows what he's doing here, going after these mid-major, low-major guards. What position is he going to project, though, in the rotation he doesn't seem like a Quincy McKnight convert him over to the point guard he's 6'5 205 you know it looks like he can play more of a wing slash two no yeah I'm thinking they're going to slot him in on the two or the three 
with an eye on Anthony Nelson playing point guard, taking over full-time as a junior. So that wasn't the only transfer news that we were hearing um, early in the summer. But I'm wondering how legit the news was with Shakur Justin from uh, a UNLV grad transfer coming off the knee injury. He ends up at Oregon, but there was a lot of chatter, at least from the fans, that he was coming to Seton Hall or he was considering Seton Hall. Where was that in the reality spectrum? It was legit. Seton Hall was definitely high up on his list. He wanted to be here. He's a Newark native. He played his high school ball at Patterson Eastside. Coming out of high school, going over to Juco out in Kansas, he kind of wanted to get away from the area, but he was interested in coming back, playing with his former AAU teammate, Miles Powell. You know, Houston, he did want to be here. And Seton Hall wanted him, but at the end of the day, just a numbers game. Seton Hall didn't have room for him. And adding Houston would have been the kind of addition that raises this team ceiling a lot. You're bringing in a guy who averaged nearly a double-double at UNLV, you know. Adding that kind of piece to the table just makes this Seton Hall team so much more legit. So it's unfortunate that it didn't work out, but there was defo- definitely real interest on both sides. There seems to be a bit of a lock jam um, in the front court for uh, Seton Hall. So playing time may have been at a premium. How much, uh, how much of that did factor in for uh, uh, Justin going to Oregon? It definitely factored in in the sense that when you're recruiting grad transfers, most grad transfers want to go somewhere where they could see substantial playing time. It's a tough sell to kids when you're saying, hey, look, we only have 10 to 15 minutes a game available. How many grad transfers want any part of that? They want to go somewhere where they could play. And Seagulls kind of dealt with that in the grad transfer market recently. Last year, same deal. They weren't really able to bring in a guard grad transfer just in the sense that there wasn't much playing time available. These grad transfers want to see the court. They don't want to come off the bench. So yeah, I would definitely say that played a role in Houston's decision. So I want to talk about the elephant in the room. He wanted to come, but we didn't have a roster spot for him. We take Molson, and that's why I kind of wanted to lead off with Molson. Molson being given the scholarship to sit one play two put us at our maximum number of scholarships at this point. Yeah. So even if Justine wanted to come join, which everything said that he wanted to, and there's a lot of people that agree with your sentiment, which is his ability if he were to come back off the knee injury and play like he did two years prior, he could elevate the ability for this team. I, I saw him as a guy where if he brought the same type of athleticism and underneath the basket play that he did for UNLV, I think he would have easily carved out 25 minutes. But we didn't have a roster spot. If he was going to join us, how was that going to materialize? Where were we going to find that roster spot? I think, first of all, we're, let's go back to before the Molson recruitment. I think if Seton Hall's staff knew that Shakiri Houston was going to leave UNLV and wanted to come back, to Newark and play at Seton Hall. I don't think Molson's here. I'm going to be completely honest with you guys about that. But when it comes to making room for a player like Houston, we all know Willard, how he works. He's never going to be a coach who forces a kid out in favor of another one. And there's definitely a log jam in the front court that kind of prevented Houston from coming here. And, you know, you can read the tea leaves. You, I'm not going to name names because I'm not in the business of doing that. I don't like doing it with current players. But you could figure out which players were kind of blocking Houston from coming here. Of course. No, no, I mean, it, it goes without saying. There's yeah. also the the mindset that Jared Roden played really well off the bench last year in more of a stretch four type role. You know, a little undersized, but, you know, he's very tough on the boards. And if we're going to find more minutes for him to play this year, he might kind of slot into that backup four role. I, I don't know if that's essentially where I want to see him log the majority of his minutes, but Justine coming in is also going to slow down the progression of Jaron Roden, per se. Agree? Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely a factor, but not only Jared Roden, but Tyree Samuel as well. They have eyes on him playing him at the four, too. You know, I don't know. I'm not really a fan of Roden playing at the four for an extended period of time. I like him more at his natural three, but with Miles Kell out there constantly, it's hard for Jaron to get mitts. 
So Willard elects to go small, put Roden at the four, and it works sometimes. And I think definitely it helps Seton Hall that he's versatile and able to play that four. I think bringing in Juson would have taken away the ability for Willard to play that small ball, play Roden at the four, and that would kind of limit Roden's opportunities to A, progress, and B, see the floor at key moments. I got one more question before we move on to some of the yeah. new guys we brought on. I, and, and you already kind of brought up the, the concept. It's not Willard's MO to take a current member of the roster, push them out the door in order to kind of maybe fulfill the potential of what another player could bring. I can respect that, but there are a lot of fans out there that are basically saying if you want the opportunity to sometimes take the program to the next level have a special season you can't pass on the potential talent of someone like justine and like i said without naming players but once again move on from somebody who has just not worked out or might not be fulfilling their potential in the Big East level or within the system yeah and i definitely understand that you know you have a fan base that's hungry to win you see a kid like justin who's able to come in and possibly take this team to the next level you're like hey big time programs make that move happen let's be a big time program and get him in here and you know, I guess it gets to a point where as a head coach, you have to decide, are you going to sit one of your players down and have the tough conversation with him? I think that's all it is. And that's like you said, that's not Willer's MO. That's not what he's about. He's going to ride with what he has. He's going to ride with the players that he originally brought in on scholarship, unless they prove to him that he shouldn't be here for other reasons that have nothing to do with basketball. Because I'm a glass half empty kind of guy, you know, looking at these two situations here, I don't know that we addressed the issues that we said this team needed to from the grad transfer market. At the end of last season, we mentioned it. When we had J.P. Pelsman on, he even mentioned it. We need more accurate three-point shooting. Neither one of these transfers actually handles that situation. So where are we going to find it, especially now that the three-point lines push back more? In the beginning of the uh, grad transfer cycle, there was a junior college player. His name's slipping my mind right now. I believe his last name was Antonio. I could be wrong on that. He wound up going to UNLV, I believe, and this kid was pretty much exactly what you described this team needed knockdown shooter from the wing he could a create his own shot b come off screens hit all hit the three all that stuff as for where seton hall finds that production now well obviously it's too late on the grad transfer market you just gotta hope that a guy like miles kale steps up and becomes more consistent from beyond the three-point arc same goes for jared roden Tyree Samu could shoot the ball a little bit, but not to the point where, you know, he's a reliable three-point threat. You just got to hope guys develop into more of that three-point shot. That's really all you wish for at this point in time. See, this keeps on coming back to the whole Justine situation. I think if he would have joined us, another player would have moved on to make room for his minutes availability kind of situation. Whereas in trying to attract that grad transfer that was going to be your long-distance shooter— that guy also wants 20 to 25 minutes of playing time. And where are you finding him the minutes? McKnight, Kale, Howell, Nelson, Roden. I mean, th there were no minutes available for that guy to come in and kind of sell him on the concept of there's going to be a role for you to play that position. I, I just didn't see it. I know they needed it, but it just didn't make any sense. That's the main issue with graduate transfer recruiting, not only for Seton Hall, but for programs across the country. There's just sometimes not enough room and not enough minutes to go around for a graduate transfer to feel comfortable entering a situation where they might not see as much playing time. And on the flip side, as a head coach, do you want to sit down with one of your current players and say, hey, look, we're going to bring this kid in. He's going to help us in this and that area. Your minutes might be reduced. So you're kind of walking a very fine line. And it's just that's the game that is graduate transfer recruiting. It's really complicated if you don't have the minutes to go around. Now, moving to more traditional uh, recruiting, we had a pretty good week and a half recently with the signings of Dominguez Stevens and Jahari Long. Now, they may not be the names that most fans were looking for, 
But these are potentially two productive uh, players coming in in that 2020-2021 season. What can you tell us about these guys there, Tyler? So let's start with Stevens. I love his game. He's a knockdown shooter. He plays with an edge. He has that D.C. toughness. He plays with one of the top AAU programs out of D.C., team takeover so he knows what it is to play top level ball as this was a great get for Willard and the staff originally he was kind of down on the board but once they brought him in for his official visit they decided to make him a priority and that was the right decision in my eyes he definitely has the edge to succeed playing for Seton Hall he already has the shooting ability there's something to be made you know maybe he has to improve taking people off the dribble improving at creating his own shot but hey look you bring in a kid like Dominguez Stevens who could shoot, he's definitely going to be a player. He's going to get minutes for Willard. He had a really subpar peach jam performance. I mean, I was looking at some of the numbers, five games, four points a game, 22% shooting. And look, I, I watched the video. He's got some really deep range. But during that tournament, he shot one of 18 from three. So my question is, because he had a subpar peach jam, did that give Seton Hall the opportunity to kind of sneak him, sneak in and lock him up early. Definitely. I read this article on CBS about a week ago. It broke down the Peach Jam. Sometimes coaches will go to the Peach Jam and watch these kids play. They're kind of rooting for the guy that they're targeting to do kind of bad so all the programs back off. Again, recruiting's all game. It's, you know, it's a game within the game. In terms of Stevens' performance at the Peach Jam, I watched a lot of the film of Team Takeover at the Peach Jam, and with the talent that they have on that team, Stevens doesn't really get a lot of touches. He doesn't get the opportunity to get in a rhythm. You know, he's kind of the low man on the totem pole in terms of being a scoring option. So that might have something to do with it. He had a solid EYBL season up until the Peach Jam. So, you know, maybe he just went cold at the wrong time. It is what it is the way I see it. You know, it's unfortunate that he got cold. I don't think it's really indicative of who he is as a player, but I would definitely say it probably helps Seton Hall land him. I definitely agree with that. So Jahari Long, what what's his story? So Long is a kid who's from Texas. He's been playing his way up boards and recruiting rankings all across the country throughout the summer. He's a guy who's progressing. He's getting better every single day. And this is a big reason why I love this addition. He sees the court very well. He has a high motor. He never takes a playoff. He's a solid defender. Again, his three-point shooting needs to improve he's, he's decent around the rim this is a kid who is the ideal kevin willard recruit who's going to come in and get better every single year he's already on his way up he's trending in the right direction and you know what i'm gonna come out and say it it's not a popular opinion but i'm gonna stand by it. i think he's a better fit than posh alexander i'm gonna be completely honest with you guys and here's what when you look at a guy like posh alexander He's more of a combo guard who doesn't really thrive running an offense. He needs to score, and he doesn't really – I'm not saying he's not a good defender, because, but he takes some plays off defensively. He's not the best defender in the world, and we all know in Kevin Willard's scheme, you got to play defense if you're going to see the court. I just think Long, as a distributor, as a defender, as an overall player, he might be a better fit than Posh Alexander at this point in time. I really do believe that. I don't disagree. Sometimes we need to have a natural progression of – hey, here's my guy who's going to be a junior and senior. It's his time to kind of, you know, run the point. And that's going to be Anthony Nelson. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping Nick Nelson takes that jump this year and takes a more predominant role. But if Nelson continues to progress to the level that we expect and you all of a sudden have Long come in, you don't want that kind of animosity or that, you know, that maybe issues with chemistry in the locker room where one guy is necessarily expecting the minutes. I'm not saying you don't want a guy like Long to push Nelson, but it's always nice to kind of, as Tom says to me off, off the air, you want that like apprenticeship type role, right? Where the other guy is going to come in and learn from the upperclassmen and then you kind of pass the keys over to the next guy when, when Nelson graduates. Along those lines, I think it is a better fit potentially. Yeah, because I think Posh would have come to Seton Hall kind of expecting a chunk of playing time. 
in a sense of what are you going to do? You're going to tell Anthony Nelson as a junior and senior as he continues to progress, hey, look, we're going to insert Posh at the point. I mean, I just don't see that happening. I think Long is a willing learner. He's very coachable, and he wants that apprenticeship, and he'll be ready to take over once Nelson graduates. And another thing with uh, Posh Alexander, seeing all fans for a while have been going on about how Kevin Willard hasn't brought in a true point guard to run the show. You know, last season, McKnight, eh, he had to make the transition over from the two to the one. Season before that, Kadeen, not a natural point guard. Harry Long's a natural point Posh Alexander is, so he fits that need of a true point guard. We, we also had, a, I mean, we're going back into some revisionist history here, but we had a situation where... This transition from an upperclassman to mentoring a younger guy kind of didn't play itself out the way we expected. We had Donald Copeland on, and we had, a, we had Justin Sarasoli, who was a top 50 recruit, one of the best guys that Lewis Orr had targeted during his days, and Justin Sarasoli just really didn't pan out. And the fan base and the player himself were expecting a lot of minutes. And I think the chemistry of that team, uh, the balance of minutes just kind of took that season off the rails completely. And when Donald finally got a chance to you know, kind of take over as a leader, that next season was a special season. So I, I see a lot of parallel between Long and Alexander relative to how the Sarasoli situation played out. Like I said before about how graduate transfer recruiting is a fine line. Sometimes on the recruiting trail, making a certain pitch to kids about how many minutes he's going to come in and get, it's a fine line too. I think there a lot of their pitch to Long was, hey, look, we have a guy in Anthony Nelson. You're going to get your minutes off the bench, but you're going to have to learn behind him. With Posh Alexander, with some of the suitors that he has, we've all seen his top five. That's a much harder sell. It looks like we've got one more scholarship remaining, Tyler. Is there any potential? that Posh still selects us? We're still in his final five. There's always a chance, because as I always like to say, recruiting is so fluid. One day, a kid could think another thing. The next day, he's committed. You know, that's just how recruiting goes. But my personal opinion, I don't think he's coming here. I think the long edition pretty much seals that he's not going to come here. I think Seton Hall makes his top five just because they've been on him for so long. And some Seton Hall fans might view that as unfortunate that Seton Hall is now on the outside looking in because of the long edition. I just don't see Posh coming here at this point in time. If I had to guess, my best guess for Posh right now, I know St. John's likes him a lot. St. John's has been on him for a while. That'd be rough to watch Posh go to St. John's and kill Seton Hall for a while. But St. John's is the best team that remains on that list, if I'm not mistaken, right? I believe so, yeah. I believe the, the remaining team, other than St. John's and Seton Hall, are Pittsburgh, I want to say Illinois and Dayton. I mean, so I'd, I'd be surprised if he doesn't go to St. John's at this point. That, that'd be my pick right now if I had to give you a prediction on the spot. Yeah, I feel like it'd be St. John's. And that might be one that comes to bite, comes back to bite Seton Hall, but eh, it happens. So past Posh, the next big name Seton Hall has kind of got their eyes on is probably Darius Maddox. Um, yeah. His, his recruiting seemed to have taken a turn when his uh, good friend just committed to VTech. Yeah, you guys have probably seen. I've been all over the Maddox recruitment on Twitter, and I still like Seton Hall's chances from what I know. I think Seton Hall's positioned very well. Tony Skin has done an excellent, excellent job with Darius Max developing a very strong relationship with him. And I've been asked how the addition of Jay Bemisil is going to impact Max's recruitment. Like you said, they are friends, but I'm going to look at it more from a basketball perspective. The way Virginia Tech likes to play now that they have Mike Young as their head coach, it's kind of positionless basketball. So there are two spectrums of it. You could say, hey, look, we have one top 100 shooting guard now in the fold. Let's focus on other positions. You know, let's add where we need to add. And on the other end, Mike, Mike Young just might say, hey, look, we have another top 100 kid here who's interested in Darius Max. Let's go full court press. Let's get him. So it depends what Young wants to do. I think he's definitely still interested in Maddox. I think Virginia Tech, they might not push him as hard as they were before. But I think they're definitely still going to be interested. They're definitely going to go after him. How does that impact Seen Hall? I don't know. It's tough to tell because from everything I've been told, they're in very well with Maddox. Their position, well, they've been positioned well. But Tech has made a really strong push lately. I don't know how that changes now that Bamasio is in the fold, but it's gonna it's gonna come down to the wire. Seton Hall definitely 
has some start, stiff competition with Virginia Tech. And what about some of these other guys that are out there? I mean, obviously, the, the July recruiting period just ended. The Peach Jam tournament, as we referenced with Stevens, is the marquee tournament now that everyone kind of gravitates to to evaluate the top talent and the best AAU programs that are out there. Who blew up during the Peach Jam that maybe Seton Hall had their eyes on them as a target, but now they're kind of blue blood territory and we really don't have a shot? The two that stand out to me are RJ Davis and Earl Timberlake. RJ Davis was, Seton Hall was on Davis very early in his recruitment. I believe this goes back to his late freshman year, early sophomore. They were all over him. But he's getting offers from UNC now. It looks like he's looking elsewhere. He's looking at the Blue Bloods. And Earl Timberlake, man, he had he had himself a peach jam. He's completely blown up. He's releasing his top seven soon. I expect Seton Hall to be on it, but with some of the other programs they're going to be fighting with for him now, I don't see it happening. You know, that was the big fish for this 2020 class that Seton Hall was going after Earl Timberlake. If they could land him, man, that's a game changer. But the way he played at the peach jam, he's averaging a double-double at the peach jam, I believe. Like, he had a game where he went for 23 and 16 in front of, I believe, Calipari and Roy Williams were there. He's, he's just, he's blowing up to a new level. What about guys to a lesser extent? What about, like, Elijah Taylor, a Zeg Key? I know uh, what was interesting is Niels Lane just put out his his top seven and Seton Hall didn't make that list. What, what about the guys in, like, the, the second tier, the, the four-star solid guys? Yeah, I'll start with Lane. It's kind of the more of a correlation of Seton Hall getting Stevens because Seton Hall's staff was very high on Lane when they offered him originally. You know, Roselle Catholic guard. He's he's a great player, and the staff liked him a lot, but they moved on Stevens, so they went in a different direction. Lane picked up on that. Taylor, man, Elijah Taylor. I don't know if you've seen this guy at all. Man, he is jacked. He's a bruiser down low. And Seton Hall does need a big in this class, I believe. I think Taylor could be the guy. He's definitely interested Philadelphia native. His list is interesting. Seton Hall definitely has some competition. Zed Key, it's tough to tell because I believe he's further down Seton Hall's board, but at the same time he's, he's definitely garnered some attention for what he's done on the circuit throughout the summer. And another guy, Taj Tweet, he has uh, Seton Hall in his top eight, or seven, excuse me. But I, I don't see him coming to South Orange. I think he, I believe he's interested in teaming up with one of his uh, Wildwood Catholic teammates at Temple. So there are some tier two guys who definitely have interesting situations, but I think we're going to see some new tier two guys emerge very soon. One of those guys being big man out of uh, Texas, Eddie Lampkin. He's going to name his top list of schools on August 1st, 6'10", 295, big kid down low. There's some interest there from him. Seton Hall likes him a lot, so that should be interesting to see where it goes. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Tyler, you recently tweeted that another scholarship may open up shortly at the Hall for that season. What what's that all about? Yeah, that's probably going to be a 2021 scholarship. Just, you know, you read the tea leaves of some players who aren't really going to be getting a lot of playing time this upcoming season. I think uh, I think there's a chance that two scholarships open, to be honest with you guys. I think one player might graduate transfer out. I think the other might be a player who would have to sit out somewhere else. But I believe uh, there's going to be two that will open up for 2021. I know you can't say the names because you're going to re- re- uh, respect your journalistic integrity being yeah. Houstonian, but I think you're, we're alluding to Torian Thompson and, and Darnell Brody. Maybe they take some steps this year. Tom's going to sit here and tell me he's a huge Torian Thompson fan and <laughs> light bulb's going to go off and the Kentucky game's just going to perpetuate. Agree to disagree, but but I could see if those players don't log the minutes where that could be a possibility. And, you know, reading the tea leaves, not a foregone conclusion I get. I guess the fan base right now is sitting there saying, okay, we have one scholarship left over. We talked about Maddox. You've referenced, hey, they, they need another big for this class. If one of those guys was available, does it matter what the position is right now or they just go out and get the best available? <laughs> Available talent that says yes, I want to come. They're probably going to go out and get the best available player. 
at this point, I think they'll work with what they have and they'll figure it out after that. I mean, if you could bring in a guy like Darius Max, that's a big time addition. They're not going to care if he's a card forward center. It doesn't matter. They just want him. They need top notch players like him. So they're just going to bring the best player available and then go from there. Okay, rank the current uh, incoming guys right now. What do you think? One to ten, how do you think Seton Hall did? Hmm. You go one of two ways. You could look at it in the sense that Seton Hall took the bird in hand instead of waiting to see what some of their bigger time targets would do. You no, know I'm going to give them a 7.5 because I think that Stevens and Long are solid gets, but they definitely have some work to do. All right, so I'll, I'll mix it up for you then. Th- throw in... An Elijah Taylor or a Darius Maddox. We lock in our third recruit, whether it's early signing period or whenever, and we have a three-man recruiting class. Stevens, Long, Maddox, or Taylor. Now, how do you rate it? I think with Carter, it's an eight. With Maddox, it's a nine. The Carter edition is a good one, but it doesn't kind of move the needle in the way that Maddox does. Maddox is on the verge of being a top 50 talent. Some some recruiting boards have mentioned this is a kid with five-star potential. So I think Maddox kind of moves the needle up to a nine. Like I said, Taylor's a great player, good get, but I think that'll only move it up to an eight. Okay, viewer gambling man, who do we get in that final spot? I might catch some heat for it because I know some people aren't too confident right now with Darius Maddox. Oh, could it, could it, there we go. Could yeah. it possibly be none of the above, though? Definitely. It could definitely be none of the above. You know, sometimes you just miss all the kids. That's the name of the game, and... There's definitely a chance it could be none of the above. It could be a guy like Eddie Lampkin who takes that last spot. It could be someone we don't even know of right now. Michael, stop it. Tyler's got us going to the Sweet 16, and we're getting Darius Maddox. Don't be <laughs> don't be that negative guy. This is all about perspectives and stop opinions. It, we we, we got to look at the other side of the coin. I agree. Getting the bird in the hand versus two in the bush is better than what Willard has been caught with in the past, which is holding the bag. I mean, not a nice pickup last minute in getting Madison Jones to replace Isaiah Whitehead. We wanted Trayvon Duvall, and we end up kind of shuffling the rotation around and moving guys out of position. I think Willard, for the first time, is like, you know what? Let's get guys that want to be here. Let's get guys that fit our system, like Tyler mentioned with, with Long and being a defensive minded point guard first i agree with all of this but but at some point you have to want to go for the you know the the bigger prize people want to be sweet 16 you want to make a run at winning the big east title and you want to do these things consistently you got to have four or five star talent occasionally to do that you're not going to win the big east title with three star talent over and over again i'm glad you brought up trevon duvall because i actually wanted to talk about him a little bit when i talked about the whole bird in hand thing because i remember throughout that whole recruitment i I was just getting started covering seton hall that's kind of when i started getting into it everything going on and we all know the staff went after devolved everything they had he almost wound up coming here it's closer than a lot of people know but throughout that whole process there was there were guards who seen all could have gotten that they allowed to go elsewhere for example jose alvarado who's now at georgia tech he wanted to come to Seton Hall. He's a very good player, but they're like, hey, look, we're going after Duvall. We're going for the big fish. Sorry. And, you know, if, you, if you're really confident that you could get the big fish, I don't mean to go for it. Sacrifice your backup plan. Sacrifice your plan Bs. Go for it. If you're really confident that you can make it happen. But if you're not 100% sold on it, sometimes you just have to take the three-star guy who you know is a program guy who will be here for three to four years and develops. That risk versus reward, it's really tough to tell sometimes. But I definitely agree with you that in order to be a Sweet 16 team, in order to be an upper echelon Big East team consistently, you got to go after the big fishes. Not only do you have to go after them, you got to land them. And the Pirates have the staff in place with Tony Skin, Glenn Wilbur, Grant, Willard. They have the staff to land these big fishes. They just got to close the deal. It's always fun to look back and, and play what if and then evaluate what, what the end result was. So we don't get Duval. Kadeen plays kind of out of position. And then 
we all ultimately get Anthony Nelson the following season. Would, would this team have been better if they would have grabbed the kid out of Georgia Tech and he would have been on that roster last year and the year prior? Probably not because I'm not sure how much of an instant impact he would have made because I, I believe he, he took some time to get going at Tech. So in turn, I don't think his instant impact would have been like that of a Trayvon Duvall. I think, you know, everything worked out well for St. Hall. Yeah, they didn't get Duvall. It is what it is. You get Nelson, who I believe is going to be really, really good really soon for this team. So at the end of the day, you know, it is what it is. It worked out for the Pirates, I believe. Well, Tyler, we want to thank you for spending some time with us. We really appreciate you coming back. You have yeah. an open invitation to come back anytime you want, my friend. Oh, thank you, guys. I appreciate that. I love talking ball with you guys. Tyler right. Calvaruso, everyone. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players Donald Copeland, Desi Rodriguez, Angel Delgado, and Jerry Walker. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates.